Welcome to Tall Hungry Girl Talks. Thank you for joining me today. Today we are talking about the changing landscape of journalism and how people can be better consumers of news and information. I'm very, very excited about my guest today. His name is Ray Suarez. He is an author and journalist with some 40 years experience in local, national, and international news. He's currently a co-host for Public Radio's World Affairs program and a Washington reporter for Euronews. In recent years, he's been a visiting professor at Amherst College, the anchor for Inside Story on Al Jazeera America, and chief national correspondent for the PBS NewsHour. Quite an accomplished resume. (laughs) He's also the author of three books and is now starting his fourth on immigration in America since the 1960s and how it is changing and challenging American society. Welcome, Ray. Good to see you, Tahira. (laughs) Thank you. And secrets out, he's actually my former boss, so it's even more nerve-wracking. (laughs) Yeah, but you knew I'd say yes. (laughs) Yes. So thank you so much for being here. Um, Who better to talk about the changing landscape of journalism than you um, with your experience? Um, I want to talk about, I want to take it back a few decades when CNN launched its 24-7 news cycle, because I think that that really changed the landscape of especially television um, news and and I think it trickled down probably to um, to newspapers. Um, it forced um, other networks to compete with a similar model. What do you think this did to television journalism and the quality of it? I think you know from my vantage point, I see a lot more commentary on, and I think people often mistake that as news. But what have you seen it done since 1980? Well, it's a, you could write a book on the answer, but I'll try to break it down into a, a few shorter descriptions. What CNN did to the marketplace occurred on several different levels. It changed the business model for cable television. It changed the technology involved. And it changed our expectation as an audience of when TV news would carry immediate information. It's hard to remember a time before CNN when you used to wait until nighttime to see the latest news on an event on television. Mm -hmm. There was very little live broadcasting, uh, partly for technological reasons, partly for cost reasons. It was incredibly expensive to book satellite time, to uh, run special uh, phone lines and and, uh, get pictures from one place to another in the way that we take for granted now. And there were a lot of skeptics who watched CNN and said, you know, come on, news and who's going to, you know, housewives who are home are watching uh, The Price is Right and Let's Make a Deal. They don't want to see news. And in the early afternoon, who's home except old people and and kids and they don't want to see news. Who's going to watch this product? Mm -hmm. But it changed our understanding of what live TV feels like, looks like, sounds like, what we expect out of television as rolling coverage. It really was a revolutionary moment. It also meant that the product was now allowed to be less polished verbally. You know, they agonize over the track, the, the narration in a network spot, let's say a 
two-minute report on the network news. They agonize over every word, and it goes through six levels of editors. CNN, because the conveyor belt was moving and Mm -hmm. you had to keep delivering content, there was no expectation that it was going to go through six levels of editors and and be honed and polished and then kicked back for another uh, retrack, do the narration again. There was no time for any of that. So a more unpolished, more live narrative, more unseen style evolved along with the CNN model. I was a CNN correspondent in the early years. I was an L.A. correspondent for CNN. And what was expected of you when you did a live shot, what was expected of you as far as time, uh, what was expected of you in the field, it all was different from network news. And then cable penetration increased. Now, people questioned the model because they looked at CNN and said, well, this, this can't succeed. Only 10, 12, 14, 18% of American households even have cable television to begin with. But what happened after CNN was a rapid escalation in the penetration of cable until it became a ubiquitous consumer item, part of the media smorgasbord in every house or most houses. And um, it was more likely Yeah. That's a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. We're only about 12 blocks from the White House. <laughs> <I know. laughs> but that's live, you know, live radio. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the uh, what was I saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, too, is I feel like it's con- it's changed how we interpret news because there's so much commentary on that people think commentary is news. Ah, that's an economic consideration that forced editorial yes. change. Yes. It is impossible, or the people that run the joint decided yeah. it was impossible to do that much produced journalistic mm-hmm. content per day. If you're running packages all day, you'd have to have you know, three times as many correspondents, yeah. four times as many editors. It's and cheap. Right. Yeah. Talk is literally yeah. cheap. So putting somebody on, having them sit on a set and give their opinion, and then swiveling in your chair, looking to camera and giving your own opinion, yeah. is much cheaper than having a reporter in the field uh, distill down from everything that's in their notebook to a concentrated, refined product of, of two to three minutes that takes hours and hours. Mm-hmm. Think, of, think of the hours of a producer, a shooter, an editor, a correspondent. That's, you know, let's say 32 work hours mm-hmm. that become two minutes of television. Think of the scale yeah. to be so, um, supporting reports round the clock. And CNN ran into this kind of early because they said, the news is the star. Yeah. O.J. Simpson Chase. I remember that. This is not. We don't. We point cameras at things. We show you what's Mm -hmm. happening uh, and we don't uh, give our opinion. We don't just chatter, blah, blah, blah. Well, they ran into the real life economies of needing uh, to produce new inventory on a scale that was just impossible. Yeah. I mean, when I was an L.A. correspondent, I would often do two and three packages a day. You know, I'd do the first one and then update it for for later on in the evening and then update it again for overnights. 
when we were on a breaking story that was developing, we could expect to go on live, um, you know, four or five times. Every time they came up with a new set of anchors and, and a new rotation on the desk, there you were live again. And I'd say on the phone to Atlanta, well, actually, nothing really has happened since the last time I was on. <laughs> Freshen it up. Give me a new top. And there you were. And that changed things. That mm -hmm. forced changes editorially on the rest of the business. And now the rest of the business is more comfortable with a CNN model because you just can't produce yeah. that much stuff. Yeah. But I think, too, it, it's I think that that has um, impacted how people receive news because it was once like uh, known to be fact, right? right? And then now we have different sides of the spectrum. Um, I think, you know, people, it's a general consensus that Fox News is more to the right and then maybe MSNBC or something is to the left. And, you know, in doing a little experiment in advance of this, just watching both, there's a lot of talking on. Oh, you bet. And, you know, working at, you know, the news hour, we know that, I mean, there, that was reserved for, you know, Friday night, <laughs> Brooks and Shield. For just one yeah. single segment. Mm -hmm. The yeah. rest of the time it was serious it was, as a crutch and yeah. all reported material. Yeah. yeah, and so now I think the consumer is confused by that. Do you, I mean, in your experience, do you think that that is the case? Is it, that It didn't do good things for the business. Yeah. Building in an expectation in the audience that a lot of what they heard was opinion blurred the lines in such a way that even when painstakingly reported stuff was being put on, it was assumed, well, that could be opinion too. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a terrible moment for the business. They really should have thought about that a great deal more than they did because the, the public has lost a certain confidence that it had that when a reporter went out, found things out, assembled them, took new information on, tossed old information out, that what they were seeing was a relatively straight narrative of the facts as they were understood. Now, that isn't always the case, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I mean, in, in journalism school, <laughs> dating myself now, <laughs> at U of O, we had to take a class called Information Gathering, where we were required to write a 100-page research paper and have at least 35 sources. And um, we had to know the source of information, organization, who owned it, you know, who it was funded by, all of that, so we could know if any biases existed. And now I think, you know, seeing the commentary, but also everyone has a smartphone and a blog and everyone is a journalist. Do you think that that has had a similar impact that the 24-7 hour news cycle has? How do you think the journalistic standards have evolved with the advent of the smartphone? What you're talking about is really editorial change driven by technological change. Mm -hmm. None of these new ways of storytelling could have developed in the way that they did without all the tools and the toys becoming much cheaper and um, able to be used effectively by people who were not experts. When I did my first job in TV at CNN, the lens on the camera was $24,000 and the body of the camera was $27,000. So it was just over $50,000 on the shoulder of my cameraman. Mm -hmm. And so that right there, that automatically narrowed down to a very small number of players. 
the people who could take television quality pictures, dense enough, color corrected enough, so that an audience would look at it and say, yes, this is what professionally produced television looks like. Now you and I could go to Best Buy, if there's still one open anywhere, <laughs> and buy for $1,000 a camera that makes a better picture than mm -hmm. that $50,000 camera. So visually, uh, I have on my desk now, because I'm producing audio content in my, in my home office because of the pandemic, I have a digital tape recorder that is as small as a pack of cigarettes. When I bought my first digital audio recorder, it was the size of a book. And before that, they were only in studios. And mm -hmm. before that, they didn't exist. Yeah. So you had to have a bunch of cassettes in your bag and constantly be swapping them out. The change in the technology. A video camera is now the same thing. It's the same camera as your telephone and your still camera and your audio recording device. I do live television from my auto office for Europe using just my cell phone as my camera. I connect with France using an app on my phone and the camera in the phone delivers HD video to European cable subscribers who hear about what's going on in Washington from me. That is unbelievable. Yeah. A couple of hundred dollars and you jump and piggyback on the same Wi-Fi that you use to get your television and, and get everything else that you get over the web and I'm talking to Europe live. It is remarkable and made possible by everything getting smaller, cheaper, easier to use and high quality. You couldn't be a television videographer without at, the, at those high levels mm -hmm. where I worked in network television and worked at CNN and worked at the NewsHour. You simply couldn't be a videographer without years of experience. You just couldn't do it. Now you can pick up a camera and tomorrow you'll be taking reasonably good-looking video. Mm -hmm. And it's already color-corrected and it, it is idiot-proof. So yeah. it, it corrects many of the mistakes and jitters that you might have uh, shooting it yourself. So all of this is happening. Think of parallel rivers, an economic river and an editorial <laughs> river and a technological river all flowing and then finally converging. It is amazing what's happened just in the length of one career. Do you think it's been good for journalism, though? With, like, I think on one hand, it, it gives everyone access and, and it breaks economic barriers. But on the other hand, there's like a, you know, a, I think it dilutes um, like standards of journalists. It's tremendously um, subversive, tremendously disruptive tremendously democratizing. Yes. So it means that anybody who decides they want to be a content creator can hire themselves to be one. <laughs> in America, we don't license journalists. There's no journalism license in my pocket. So if you decide you're a journalist, you're a journalist. Mm -hmm. If you can tell a story to somebody else over some manner of, of information delivery, you're a journalist. And so the silos that existed have just totally been broken down. You had to walk through a very narrow door yeah. to get on the radio. You couldn't start your own radio station. Mm -hmm. You had to get a radio station to put you on television. You couldn't uh, put you on the radio. You couldn't start your own TV station. You had to get a TV station to put you on. And 
starting your own magazine or newspaper was just prohibitive. It was, yeah. you know, you could, arguably, if you had the dough, but who did? Yeah. Well, now you can become a publisher. You can become a writer. Mm-hmm. You can become a creator of audio and video programming. You could become a filmmaker. Because you want to be one. It's mm-hmm. not beyond reach. A podcaster. A podcaster. <laughs> which, And that's that's just a wonderful and remarkable thing. But a lot of people jumping into the pool at once means that the quality control and the sort of market rationality where you listen to things that are better and you ignore things that are worse, that's taking some time to work out. There's a lot of junk out there. There's 900,000 podcasts. Mm-hmm. And some of them. Some of them are crap. <laughs> not this one, <laughs> not though. Not this one. Obviously. And not mine. <laughs> yes. But um, because there hasn't been a shakeout, mm-hmm. you know, there's just more content that any human being could ever listen to. I mean, yeah. So my, my theory is that one day everybody in America will have a podcast and it'll have exactly <laughs> one listener. <laughs> I, you know what? I, every week, at least three people call me and say that they want to start a podcast. So I, I believe you <laughs> yeah, on there that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> okay. So pivoting to um, to talk about how the current administration has impact and and shifted the way that we do journalism in this country. Um, I think sixty minutes. Um, I would. I think most would agree that it's pretty middle middle of the road. Um, uh, I think this past week, Leslie Stahl was doing an interview with President Trump, and he walked out of the interview um, before it was done. Um, I think uh, people, you know, he often calls um, any negative reporting done on him fake news, and you now you often hear this term used by members of the media and the public. Um, how has his relationship with the press impacted how not only how journalists report the news, but how people feel about the news that they're consuming? Think of something big and heavy and cumbersome teetering on the edge of a cliff. <laughs> the news business was already teetering on the edge of a cliff. Mm-hmm. The business model is busted. The public's faith in the product is busted. And Donald Trump walked by and gave it that last little push Mm -hmm. that it needed to go over the cliff. And we are going to deal with that and pay for it and repair it in the years to come or else game over. Mm -hmm. Um, We've spent a century building legacy institutions and building a certain style in American journalism that relied on a certain amount of public belief in what we were doing. And that's just been trashed. And it's not easily repaired. It's not easily replaced. And it's not easily rebuilt. The thing that the president has done, which is remarkable in its breathtaking audacity, its sheer nerve, was to just destroy the idea of truth itself. Mm -hmm. That there was a knowable, findoutable, understandable thing that was true. Mm -hmm. And these other things over here are not true. Mm -hmm. What he has spent the last four years doing is creating a world where, hey, you say this is true. I say it's not true. And I say this other thing is true. And we're all just going to say what we want to say is true as opposed to the idea that something is true. During the 2016 campaign, he said that 
the the unemployment statistics were bunk, and in fact, 45 to 50 million Americans were unemployed, which was ludicrous. It was silly. It was nonsense. But it was repeated even on the Fox Business Channel by people like Stuart Varney. They would take that number, and because he said it, they'd say they'd do the, you know, the worst, cheapest uh, refuge of a scoundrel. Hey, we're not saying it's true or not. We're just quoting him. He said it. And um, we injected ideas into the public's bloodstream that were simply false, that Mm -hmm. America was experiencing a sudden and calamitous rise in violent crime, for instance. That was not true. It was a lie. It was fake. It It was a falsehood. And he repeated it and repeated it and repeated it till by election day that year, I had people saying to me, crime is on the rise. Our big cities are in desperate trouble. And I'd say, well, no, actually not. That's not true. What do you mean? And I'd say, well, New York is the safest big city in the country. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And it has, two years later, it had the lowest number of murders in its recorded history as a city since they started keeping crime statistics. People don't think about these things. Yeah. Violent crime from 1988-89 cratered in this country. If we were telling the truth to each other about crime, instead of having a leader who's actually telling us the country is more dangerous than it is, we'd have somebody saying, well, wow, we ought to figure out what we did right and go to the places that still have a crime problem and do those things that we did right in those other places. Mm -hmm. There is actually a purpose, a policymaking purpose for facts and real life and verifiable reality and understood truth. So what, so I I remember at the beginning of his administration, there was a lot of um, debate amongst journalists. They would talk about it. The New York Times would talk about it. And they were very against using the word lie. Uh, The L word. Yeah. Yeah. And so it was like this back and forth about, well, this is not true. And now I I think there's a general consensus across, um, you know, platforms they'll they will say it's a lie and now twitter is you know is either taking it down or putting it up with some sort of disclosure when he tweets something and facebook has started doing that how as a journalist do you navigate that when it was really hard and you could tell that it was a painful culture change because lie the l word means ascribing foreknowledge and ascribing motive to mm-hmm. somebody else's untruth It's one thing to make a mistake. It's one thing to believe something that's incorrect and repeat it. And then once you're correct, you say, oh, okay," and start saying the right thing. But he was purposely telling falsehoods about himself, about the history of his businesses, about his involvement in in certain projects, about a lot of things. Mm -hmm. He was just lying. But you could tell in the pages of the Washington Post and the pages of the New York Times and newspapers across the country that they were having a difficult time because the lies came at a volume and a speed and they were about, in many cases, consequential things. So you couldn't just, you know, it wasn't like his favorite Beatle was Ringo and he was telling you it was John. It was about stuff that mattered. Yeah. And 
How do you deal with that if you cover the White House for a major American news outlet? Finally, the dam burst. Mm -hmm. A thousand little tiny leaks started to appear, and the business had a real problem. And then finally, they just started to say, well, he lied about this. Mm -hmm. And a lot more work went, in, went into determining what he actually knew versus what he said. And that allows you to use the L word. Mm -hmm. It's a big deal. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to trivialize or, or um, dismiss what a big thing that is. And it, I, I actually mourn its loss yeah. because... I remember how big of a deal oh, it was yeah. at, you know, at the beginning of his administration and how journalists were really grappling with that. And, but what do you do with a public official who, who does not tell the truth every day? Yeah. Not, you know, there used to be a certain element of shame that was part of this whole mechanism. So uh, a politician would say something that wasn't true. It would be publicly acknowledged that it wasn't true, corrected in a way in the, in the course of a newscast or in the pages of a newspaper. And then the White House press office would retract and restate. The president would apologize. You know, sometimes it was a lame, half-assed apology. Yeah. But he would acknowledge that he said something that was not true, restate it in a truer way, and then move on. Try to erase the fact that this event had even taken place. But now, for the first time, we had a breezy, conscienceless liar who lied multiple times a day about multiple different subjects. And if you covered Washington or the White House, you spent half your time running down his lies, trying to find out the verifiable yeah. fact in place of the lie. And that's a dumb way to do your business. There's yeah. so much to cover in Washington, Th and there's so much to talk about. Yeah. And you spent half your time trying to figure out whether the president knew he was wrong when he stated this really baloney yeah. fact. Mm -hmm. And that that's and fact checking well, arose as yes. a business. It didn't <laughs> exist. Yes, that brings me to my next my next question is. When there is so much to cover, how do assignment editors and reporters even decide to, you know, what to report on? I mean, I remember at the news hour, I mean, you know, we'd have a few big topics that day, you know, international and national news, you know, sometimes local. But, I mean, there weren't just this constant deluge of, like, huge stories um, that really all need reporting on, but uh, like, where where does the priority come the, in? The thing that makes that an even bigger challenge is that the news reporting staff, as a body of workers, has been shrinking steadily. As the amount of content and as the amount of content deliverers have relentlessly risen, the number of people who make a living full time being a reporter, whether they're covering you know, a county courthouse in Terre Haute, Indiana, or mm -hmm. covering a medical college in Texas, or whatever they're covering, there are fewer people working as reporters today than there were in 2000. And it feels like we're in an ocean, trying to empty an ocean with a teacup. Uh, it is a very, very difficult thing. Yeah. Where, so where does the priority come in? Like, I mean, I, I guess what is the direction that 
that, from your point of view, that assignment editors are giving to their reporters? Well, we have a news business that is a business. So you have to analyze what gets covered on several different levels, including what the audience is interested in, Mm -hmm. what you covered yesterday, what's going to be on the front pages of newspapers tomorrow, though that's less of a factor than it used to be, uh, what will be the lead story on other competing newscasts. It's an art, not yeah. a science. Yeah. It's not something that you can add up like like sums and come out with the right answer. It's a feel thing more than a than a precise gauge of how to do this. Mm-hmm. So with the um, with the fake news rhetoric, have you noticed a difference in how people treat you when you're interviewing them when you're in the field? What's the impression that yeah, you get? There's, there's a little bit more suspicion. Mm-hmm. There's a because people generally don't understand reporters, how reporting gets done, and how content gets on the air. They bring all their suspicions to the act of reporting, and I tell them, "Look, you're talking to me. I have this microphone in my hand. I can't change what you said. Well, you probably won't put this on because I'm going to say something that you won't like." I said. What I like or what don't like, or what I don't like, doesn't matter yeah. at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if you said it, that's how it gets on. There's no such thing as me changing what you said because you only said what you said. But they're very suspicious. They feel very vulnerable. There was a, a funny arc to this. People got more, the more television penetrated people's lives, the more comfortable they became with the idea of being on television. I was a street reporter for many years, and I could feel it getting easier for me to convince people to talk to me because television was ubiquitous and the news was on all the time. And um, if you're on in a marketplace, I was a reporter in Chicago for many years. Oh, well, there's this guy who I see all the time. Yeah, so he's a familiar person. So then as faith in the business began to decline, which took on a more rapid pace in the 21st century, people became a little bit more cagey, a little bit more reluctant, a little bit more careful, and also a little more unsure that they were going to be treated fairly, which is a shame, uh, because what else do I have? Uh, I don't have a, a skill like a surgeon who can point to somebody and say, yes, I saved this woman's life. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I repaired her heart valve. Here, listen. <laughs> and as it's thumping away in her chest, all I've got is my credibility. Yeah. I have no other thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the tools, anybody can buy the tools. You can buy yeah. a microphone and a cable and a notebook and mm-hmm. all those things. All I've got as currency is my credibility. And once I don't have that, then... You know, then you are taking a chance when you talk to me. And mm-hmm. I hate that feeling. Yeah. That yeah. I have to convince somebody that I'm trustworthy. But yeah. That, that's where we are right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so switching to the consumer side of it, how, like, how can people more responsibly consume information? Um, I think, you know, with, you know, Facebook and everything like that. I mean, we know that there has been disinformation campaigns from different countries. And so I am a bit of a nut in that. (laughs) 
No kidding. I, I, I read, yes. I read multiple uh, platforms, the same story, and I'll read like mm, eight to ten stories on one topic to see how, you know, because you'll find d- different tidbits of information. But I know that for the average person who doesn't have a degree in journalism, <laughs> they may not have an interest in doing this. And so, that subverts the idea of what journalism is is and what it's for anyway. The whole idea was that we went out and saw the world, we took notes, we verified facts, and then we told you what we found out because you were busy doing your life. Yeah. We did it for you so that you didn't have to read 10 different yes. articles. Well, I'm interested in, because I like to, you know, because there's sometimes... Right, but a lot of people are yeah. doing <laughs> that. A guy, once I came, I came during the Samuel Alito hearings, I did a long summary of the day's testimony. You know, mm-hmm. like six hours testimony, and I put it into eight or nine minutes for the evening news. But I came off the set. I walked back to my office, and the phone rang. I picked it up, and it was a listener who wanted to uh, argue with me about what I put on in the in the story. I just watched your story, and that's not a fair representation of what happened in today's hearings. I said, well, you know, uh, I watched all day and took notes all day. And um, as someone who's covered Supreme Court hearings before and as someone who has covered the court before, this is what I thought were the important things. And to a degree, you have to just trust that I'm an observer who has enough judgment and enough knowledge that I'm going to present a reasonable simulation of that day's he says well you left out this and you left out this and you left out this and i said well you know it was six hours and i made it into nine minutes you know there's only so much you can do he says well i you know i made up when i heard that what mr alito was all about and some of his opinions and his background i made up my mind that i was going to watch this for myself rather than watch the news (laughs) so i watched it all day today too and I said, well, sir, that, that's great. And I'm glad that C-SPAN exists so that you can watch the hearings all day. But think about that. Think about that. Can you really watch? I mean, that's my yeah. job. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I came into work today knowing that I was going to log six hours yeah. of tape on, on testimony. But really, I, I mean, maybe you're retired. I don't know. He said, I'm off today. I said, well, you can't do this every day. Part of the whole idea of journalism is that you have to put a certain amount of trust into people whose job it is to go and find things out and then turn around and tell you. That's the way this works. Yes, C-SPAN means you can watch congressional testimony. Yes, it means you can watch debate over a bill. Yes, it means you can watch the vote being taken. And that's all terrific. It's really wonderful. But in the end, journalism exists because most people are pretty busy and they're not going to watch the hearings all day. But it was a funny moment where I realized, uh uh-oh, yeah, the worm's turning here. There are a lot of people who think, I'm going to find this out for myself because I'm no longer sure that I can trust the business, this business that exists to tell me what happened, to tell me. Yeah. So, but the, you see, the, like the blind allegiance. Like I often hear talking points. I'll watch, um, you know, the more I guess right and left leaning newscasts and stuff like that. And I will hear 
verbatim talking points from people. And so I know that that is where they're getting their information from. And I will go and actually like look up a bill and be like, is that true? And I will find out, no, in fact, that is <laughs> because again, well, there I'm, you go. A, <laughs> I'm a nut. And so, you know, and, and when I debate with people, I want to make sure that uh, my facts are straight. But so how do you, I think as a consumer, going back to that question, like, how do you, how do you intelligently consume news and information? When this all started, this proliferation of sources, mm-hmm. I waved people off. I said, oh, don't worry. There'll be a flight to quality. Eventually, people won't be able to track 20 and 30 and 40 sources, and there will, they'll say, oh, you know, that other place, they... That was wrong that day. But these people were right. And eventually, without even consciously doing it, yeah. they'll go to, they'll hone in on certain sources. Boy, was I wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, I was wrong in a certain kind of way. There was a flight to a smaller number of sources. But often, they were sources that just lied to you or misstated or gave you bizarre interpretations of the events. So PJ Media, uh, a lot of what PJ Media reports is just garbage. It's just garbage. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's wrong. It's incorrect. Yeah. If you create your impressions of what's happening in the world based on what's reported by PJ Media, you will misunderstand the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I never imagined that a Breitbart could be successful, that a townhall.com could be successful, that a PJ Media could be successful because a lot of what they, and, and Newsmax uh, and Infowars and all yeah. those places, it's, a lot of it's just junk. And, and hate rhetoric. Well, you know, some, some of it is hate yeah. rhetoric, but, but a lot of it is just written in a way to mislead or obscure or leave you with an impression that if you base your understanding of an event on what you just read, you are going to misunderstand what happened. And that, that's not news. That's unnews. That's mm-hmm. anti-news. That's the, the absolute opposite of what the news business, business exists to do. And these places are profitable and well-trafficked and well-clicked and passed through. And they are legit competitors in a business sense two places that are trying to find out what the truth is. So mm-hmm. it's a tough time. Tough yeah. Time in the business. So where, I mean, is there a way, I mean, do you suggest that people like fact check the news or are there more kind of middle of the road well, I places? Would, I would make sure that I graze a large number of sources. Mm-hmm. And if possible, if you've got the bandwidth for it, as they say, Try to read multiple accounts of the same events from several different sources. You know, I, I read, uh, I have read since I was quite young, The Economist. Mm-hmm. It's a news weekly, and it's fat and filled with facts and dynamite reporting and energetic writing. It's, it's a wonderful magazine. It's very expensive, but it's tremendously useful to me partially because of my own interest in the news and partially because of what I do for a living. So I read The Economist every week, and I have for 40 years. Um, You know, I look at The Times and I look at The Post, the Chicago Tribune and the L.A. Times and uh, The Wall Street Journal and 
you know, NPR and uh, I'll watch some cable news, though not much. I'm not using TV very much lately. And, uh, you know, out of that, out of that comes a, uh, a rough idea of reality yeah. that's, that's useful. Do you encourage... I read The Atlantic. Yeah. I read, you know, Mother Jones. I read The Spectator. I read opinion journals of the left and right. Uh, just because it's important for me to know what everybody's mm-hmm. saying and how they are presenting the facts to their various publics. So Yeah. Do you, I mean, I always think that one news source, like if you have MSNBC on all day or CNN or Fox or any of the kind of 24-7, I always discourage that. No, it's a bad idea. <laughs> yeah. Bad idea. It's number one going to make you go crazy. And also you're only getting your information from one source. And you should, if you know, if you're watching one source consistently, you should at least interrogate your source. Yeah. As you're sitting there on your couch, say, why are they telling me this? Mm -hmm. Who are they having tell me this? Mm -hmm. Why are they using these words? Why are they presenting it in this way? Just to bring a second level of analysis and not just swallow it whole yeah. without chewing on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it'll give you information indigestion if you don't chew a little bit. So it's, <laughs> it's better to, um, even if these are places that you trust, you should bring a level of awareness to how this stuff gets assigned and how it gets told uh, in a jokey and dismissive manner versus a really serious manner. In a, uh, oh, hey, boy, this is pretty complicated stuff, which, you know, the, the straight news business does this again and again. Instead of saying, okay, let's you and I figure out how best to understand this. Instead, they, they think their version of being every man is acting dumber than they yeah. are. Oh, boy, oh, well, yeah. I'm glad you understand what that means because mm-hmm. I sure don't. And I think, oh, why are you yeah. doing that? Somebody won the Nobel Prize in physics. Try to explain what they did. Try to explain what they now understand. I know that it's complicated, but your job is to figure out a way of making complicated things understandable to a broad audience. And it's not to be a knucklehead who says, who already signals that it's okay not to understand this by saying, oh, I don't understand it either. (laughs) I don't. Why would you do that? Why give away your own credibility so cheaply Mm -hmm. instead of having the viewer say, yeah, Bob is a guy who helps me understand things. Mm -hmm. They're more interested in having you say, wow, Bob is just like me. Yeah. And, you know, I don't need to be just like you. (laughs) I need to be somebody that you trust to tell you something mm-hmm. that's sometimes hard to follow. Yeah, yeah. Um, so winding down, so coming to D.C., I just have a few more questions mm-hmm. for you. Um, coming to D.C. to work in the news business at the beginning of my career, um, you know, I had an internship, and this is oftentimes unpaid or low-paying, and such was the case with me. Um, this limits the socioeconomic and racial diversity because so many people can't afford to do this. I mean, I was so poor <laughs> and my parents were able to help me out like a little, little bit. Um, but probably the least out of the people that I worked with, like I didn't have a car. I lived in, 
um, like Section 8 housing. <laughs> um, so how do you think this shapes journalism? You know, that evolved over time. There used to be entry-level jobs where you were simply just paid to do the things that you did as an intern. And over time, the business figured out so many more people were majoring in journalism. So many more people had as one of the, um, the requirements of a major uh, that they work in a newsroom. So you were getting college credit for being there. And they figured out, unfortunately, over time, that they could pay little or nothing and still have a steady stream of people ready to come to their newsroom and do the things that were tough to pay for. I mean, my, my entry-level job, you know, they, they paid a part of my um, pension and they paid, oh my goodness. they paid, you know, I was a member of a union and, yeah. and had an entry-level job. I was making $2 an hour. But they still had to make, you know, disability insurance and unemployment insurance mm-hmm. contributions and my payroll tax and all that stuff because I was a real employee because the business had to get certain things done. They weren't things that required a great deal of skill or experience, but they needed to get done. Mm-hmm. So who better to hire than the people who wanted to do this for a living? So a bunch of uh, highly strung, anxious uh, willing to please the bosses, people came in and worked for eighty dollars a week, and which wasn't me. I was so not a good intern. <laughs> and, uh, and we, um, you know, most of us actually yeah. actually went into the business. Yeah. After, but the part of the the rationale of that low pay was that you won't do this for long. You'll do this as long as you need to to learn what you need to learn, and then you'll get out of here. Which is exactly what most of us did. And some people used that time to realize that this wasn't for them. Mm-hmm. Overnights, weekends, holidays, overtime, it just wasn't for them. It was yeah. not a world that they were interested in, and they went and did other things, which was okay, too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but if you're, if you're poor, you can't do this. So do you think that now, because there is so much more access that it's improved the diversity in news. And because, I mean, you know, humans, we come with our own set of biases as much as journalists, you know, try not to be biased, but we have our own set of experiences and everything like that. And so you may know to ask a question to a certain person based on your set of experiences. And if you're not getting people from that pool because they're limited by their resources, um, that shapes journalism. You bet. And, you know, it's only the jobs that you see that are diversifying. The business is not diversifying as quickly or as thoroughly as it needs to, and on a lot of different levels. Um, You know, the the business used to be populated by clever working-class people. Yeah. (laughs) High school graduates, good with words, Mm -hmm. um, you know, no no particular expertise, no particular uh, education in, in anything. Uh, but you learned what you needed to learn in the business. Mm-hmm. There's been credential creep over the years. So now it's becoming much more common to even ask for a graduate degree in journalism. 
I mean, I don't have a degree in journalism, uh, and I was purposeful about that. I didn't want a degree yeah. in journalism. I thought I'm better, I'm more valuable to these people if I actually know something about something. <laughs> So I, I studied in academic discipline. You're, and, it's and, probably true. And so, uh, you know, then then uh, graduate schools took off. They're full. They're, mm-hmm. they're still full. Even though the promise of a full-time job that will get you through your career all the way to retirement is looking pretty flimsy right now mm-hmm. because the business model is in such disarray. So there's still more people trying to go into the business than will plausibly find a job in it. Um but we have not, as a, as a big institution, figured out how to make newsrooms and the decision-making world look like America. Mm-hmm. So I've had to explain things to producers, to senior editors, to bosses that I think to myself, do I really have to explain this? But yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I, if I grew up sort of on the edge of poor and working class in Brooklyn and lived in crummy apartments and, and uh, you know, scraped and, and bought secondhand clothing and, you know, just didn't live well for a long time. And there were things that I knew about life in the world that my bosses didn't know. Well, there weren't enough people in newsrooms then and now who understand what it's like to be in the lower half of the American income distribution. If the median family income is around $61,000, $62,000, most people who are working in newsrooms grew up on the north side of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's handy to have more people who didn't. Yeah. Just, just because it shapes what you put on, how you put it on. Um, once I was asked by an executive to give him an example. And I said, you want an example? Watch the Today Show or Good Morning America when the Consumer Electronics Show is on. <laughs> and see a highly paid, easily six figures correspondent doing a live shot from the floor of the CES, previewing gizmos and gadgets and devices that cost thousands of dollars, that the average Amer- working American couldn't imagine owning. Yeah. And joking about how, well, I guess I'll pick up one of these before I come <laughs> home. And, and the, th- the thing is, that person doing that live shot can't afford to yeah. buy, um, you know, the, the first generation of Laserdisc yeah. players. I remember was, those. Which cost thousands of dollars. Yeah. Uh, the first uh, curved screen display mm-hmm. uh, color televisions. The first, you know, 64-inch high-density image color televisions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the fastest computers, all these things. The person on the set who's introducing you and doing a little patter at the end, they can afford it. Yeah. You, the reporter standing there at the Consumer Electronics Show, well, you can afford it. But the people watching the show, yeah. they can't afford it. Yeah. And to talk about it's like it's something that anybody can do um, is a tone that might not be assumed if there were more people in newsrooms for whom these goods were aspirational, interesting, but not something that they could necessarily yeah. experience themselves. Once, when I was a producer, I told uh, my correspondent that we were going to lead with a revision of the, of the Social Security law the next hour. And he said, well, you know, 
so what? Well, who cares uh, that they've uh, that they've ra- raised the threshold for paying Social Security? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, Bill, that impacts a lot of people. <laughs> Bill, um, most Americans, most Americans never get a paycheck ever that doesn't have FICA taken out of it. Mm-hmm. Be- at that point, the threshold was $42,500. He was making about ninety ninety-five. So he assumed, I mean, he looked forward to May or June when he could finally start getting paychecks without FICA taken out of it. And I said to him, you know, the vast majority of wage earners never have a paycheck with no FICA deduction. He said, that's not true. I said, yeah. Bill, no, it's it's true. Yeah. Most people don't earn anything like $45,000. Uh, this was, you know, now the threshold yeah. is $122,000, and it's just as true that most mm-hmm. Americans never see a paycheck with no FICA taken out of it. But I had to show him in black and white what the median wage for a full-time worker was in the country. And I said, look, it's not even like you get to December and those last two checks don't have FICA. I said, never, yeah. never, never, never. You, a lot of people, if we went out, if you and I took a tape recorder and went out on Broadway, because our studios were on Broadway, yeah. and asked people what the threshold was that have no idea because they have no idea that there is an amount that you can make where you no longer pay Social Security taxes. They assume it's always taken out because every paycheck they've ever earned in their life has it taken out. Yeah. He said, wow, so, I didn't yeah. realize that. And then he led with it the next yeah. hours. So. <laughs> <laughs> so you taught him a lesson. Okay, so my last question to you is, do you have hope in journalism? I think there's going to be a, a time of turbulence. Mm-hmm. And we're not by near the end of it. We're still near the beginning of it. Mm-hmm. There's going to be a big shakeout. More newspapers are going to die. More newsrooms are going to be closed and go to all something else, Mm -hmm. formats, music, talk, whatever. Uh, More magazines are going to find that they have to become not-for-profits in order and and be funded by foundations Mm -hmm. in order to be able to survive, as several magazines have done. Um, Places like ProPublica and the Public Integrity Project and other similar um, not-for-profit news organizations are going to continue to uh, blaze trails and break stories and offer an alternative model for the future. And more people are going to decide for themselves that they are broadcasters, filmmakers, authors, writers, and publish themselves. More books are going to be self-published than published by the big publishing houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, more documentaries are going to be made by people who didn't get hired by somebody to make it and didn't get an advance of big bucks. Yeah. And they come in with the already finished product, and those products are going to turn up on Amazon Prime and Apple TV and on and on and on. The world is changing. We aren't nearly where we're going to end up, but it's an exciting time that uh, more voices. Old, we will old hear. Old dogs yeah. like me have to adjust to yeah. in order to make a living. And that's okay, too. Mm-hmm. And I am adjusting. Yes. 
Well, thank you so much for adjusting and coming on this <laughs> and coming on this podcast. Um, I really appreciate it. It's been great talking with you. Um, you can find Ray Suarez on World Affairs, um, which is available wherever you get your podcasts or on the kqed.org website. Thank you so much, Ray. Great to see you. Yes. Um, and you can find me at tallhungrygirl.com, um, on Instagram at tallhungrygirl, and Tall Hungry Girl Talks anywhere where you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. 